name is Isabel and I'm your host for the ESG Quick Takes podcast brought to you by ESG Book. In this episode, we zoom in on the behavioral economics and incentives behind sustainable investing and corporate sustainability. Our expert today is Tom Gosling. Tom is an executive fellow at the London Business School, where he works on issues relating to corporate governance, responsible business and sustainable investing. He also sits on the ESG Advisory Committee at the Financial Conduct Authority. Previously, Tom was a senior partner at PwC, where he created and led the firm's executive pay practice. Hello, Tom. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on. So kicking us off, um, I'd love to start with a topic that you pioneered at PwC, executive pay. And remuneration for CEOs, including bonuses, is always kind of a hot topic. Um, society talks about it. Um, of course, internally, businesses are really concerned about it always. But in essence, it's about incentives and balancing between long-term shareholder value and individual gains and, and needs, so to say. So your research shows that about 77% of investors think that CEO pay in the UK is too high or far too high. So tell us, based on your experience over the years, when are CEOs paid enough? Yeah, I mean, you're right that um, our survey, which which was done with um, Alex Edmonds of, of London Business School and Dirk Genter of um, the LSE, um, did find that investors in the UK think that CEOs are paid too much by around a third or more. And actually, when it comes to the public, it's even worse. So it's quite interesting that polling around the world pretty consistently shows that um, CEOs are paid around 10 times more than um, the public think they should be. But but I think some of this is sort of based on this myth that CEOs don't matter, that, you know, they sit on top of these large companies that have thousands of employees and brands and products that sort of you know, that the ship would sail on whether or not it has a, a, a captain. But there is some really interesting research um, that looks at what happens when you get unexpected deaths of, of CEOs. And, and you might think that the value of a company would always fall when, when a CEO dies, but actually almost half the time it goes up because investors figure they can maybe get a better CEO. And um, this sort of shows, from this research, you can impute that Investors attribute about 5 to 10% of the value of the company to the difference between a good and bad CEO. So if you've got a company that's worth, you know, $10 billion, euros, pounds, whatever, you know, 5 to 10% of that pays for quite a lot of CEO compensation. And we've also seen companies becoming bigger, more complicated. CEO tenures become shorter, pay's got more risky. And for all of these reasons, I think pay's, pay's gone up over the last 40 years. And, and that's not just in, in listed companies either. We've seen that in private companies, professional services partnerships, um, private medicine, media, sports, entertainment. So, so I think when you look at all of these economic forces, I actually don't think that pay of £5 million pounds for a you know, CEO of a large company in the UK is, is, is unreasonable. And even if you look at the US, where you can get some truly eye-watering numbers at the top end, the averages actually aren't. I think, completely out of whack with what you might think is a sensible economic outcome. And, and I do think that we need to let our companies pay competitively. Otherwise, you can't get the CEOs you want. And that makes a difference. And actually, I think we're starting to see that a little bit in the UK now. So I guess my own view on this is that I, I think we need to focus a little bit less on, on what CEOs are paid and a bit more on how they're paid. 
you know, are the incentives right? Is it long term enough? Are we distorting their incentives through lots of short term targets? But then also whether we've got the right CEO and and how they're performing. How they're performing. So one of the interesting things in the past years has been the surge of sustainability linked payment schemes for for CEOs and and basically linking the pay to ESG targets or sustainability targets. And um, a few years ago, you warned that linking the CEO pay to very vague and easy targets can totally miss the point. Um, and you said it's not easy to buy virtue. What do you think of this today now that we have a little bit more experience with this? Um, has ESG become part of a normal CEO task list or should it still be part of a very concrete target that is linked to their pay? Well, um, since I wrote that piece, we have had a flood of companies introducing ESG targets into pay and the vast majority of companies have now adopted the practice. I think something over 85, 90% of companies have ESG targets in pay uh, and that's pretty much a global phenomenon. Um, and um, I, I'm afraid that a number of my fears have been borne out in, in my view. I think the targets are often poor quality and um, they're paying out at a very high, high level. Uh, just to give an example of that, um, at London Business School, we, we did a, a project with um, my old firm PwC and with Sevian Capital, the activist investor who's been a prominent proponent of putting ESG targets in pay. And um, we looked at climate targets in uh, the largest 50 European companies, and um, almost all of them have climate targets, or at least um, it's a very significant majority of them. But only one in seven of these companies had targets that met some quite basic standards for the targets being meaningful, objective, transparent, and, and, and clearly aligned to their long-term net zero goals. And we also looked at how these targets are paying out so far. And on average, they're paying out at around 90% of the maximum and, and actually half of the targets are paying out at the maximum, despite the fact that we're clearly not making enough progress in aggregate on, on, on climate change. So it, it doesn't seem to me to have been like a huge success. And I think the key thing to understand here is that um, boards set targets in line with the strategy set by the CEO and endorsed by the board. And sometimes people think about ESG targets in pay as a way to kind of get these nasty CEOs to be sustainable in ways that they don't want to be. But that's just not how board governance works. So an ambitious ESG strategy will lead to ambitious ESG targets in the company, and that may then be reflected in pay targets to reinforce that strategy through the business. And that's that's a good thing. That's part of how you create a culture in the business. But pay targets themselves can't create an ambitious ESG strategy. And sometimes we seem to act as um, as though it can. And I think the consequences then when everybody's kind of rushing hand over fist to put ESG targets in pay, they're putting in place, you know, fairly poor quality targets that they're they're likely to meet anyway. So, so I think the starting point is for strategies to integrate ESG in a meaningful way into the value creation process. And that's going to come from leadership. It's going to come from the board and the CEO, and it's not going to come from pay targets. And I mean, if that all sounds a bit bleak, I think the good news is that I think that integration of ESG into strategy in a meaningful way is increasingly happening. And when you see that happening, then you see much better quality pay practices that follow. But when ESG is sort of viewed as a little bit of a sidebar to the main action in the business, then 
you get poor quality pay as a, as, as a result. But it isn't the pay practices that are driving the change, it's the strategic intent that drives the change. And can you give an example of the strategic intent, like how of an example of, let's say, an ESG target, how you see it truly embedded in a corporate strategy, perhaps without naming names, but like, how would that in practice look like? Yeah, so, um, you know, I think that there are some quite good examples, um, for example, in consumer goods industries where, you know, there is a recognition that purpose led brands can um, if correctly communicated and developed, grow quicker than other brand, other brands. So, you know, organisations like Unilever have been quite public about the research they've done on their own portfolio that shows that that alignment between the brand and their core purpose and ESG is a big part of that purpose actually creates a commercial uh, advantage. Um, similarly, I think you can see, you know, there's well kind of grounded research around um, higher performance coming from uh, good treatment of, of employees. And of course, for companies for whom environmental issues and climate change are particularly existential, then integrating those environmental considerations effectively into strategy can be absolutely essential to commercial success. I think the problem has been that um, ESG has sometimes been viewed as the as a sort of the nice bit of the business, you know, the bit that sort of almost um, provides, um, you know, exculpation for all of the sort of bad stuff that the business does in its sort of core areas, rather than being kind of fully, fully integrated. And that's sometimes seen in ESG reporting that can sometimes be quite detached from what the business is doing. So that's the sort of thing that I mean. Right, like ESG almost as compensation or like add on philanthropy rather than being part sure. of a business. Yeah. So, so zooming in on one of those targets, net zero. Net zero has been um, kind of a commonly used term. It's not only about emission reduction, but also about kind of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees by reducing emissions and perhaps offsetting or investing in climate solutions. Uh, many corporates and investors have been pledging to net zero in different alliances as well. Your research finds that the more likely an investment strategy is to nudge the world to net zero, also the more likely it is to give rise to potential risks and costs compared to investing within a normal market portfolio. Um, so even if climate savvy investing is good for the world, it's not necessarily optimal for financial market returns. Is that 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 ever tension between impact and and kind of very nice goals. Um, can you expand on this? Where is this tension exactly? And, and, and what does it mean for all these net zero pledges that are now kind of being tested in practice? So I think we need to go back to basics about what financial markets do. Um, you know, they place a value on businesses by discounting future cash flows at a rate of, I don't know, 8 to 10% a year, because this is the rate that balances out current consumption and future savings given the risk that exists in, in financial markets. Uh, and and that's, their, that's their role. But the problem is that businesses can currently pollute by emitting CO2 and other greenhouse gases essentially for free in many industries. It, it doesn't really affect those future cash flows. I mean, it might at some point in the future if um, government regulation change, but not now and, and not enough to limit global warming to 1.5 um, degrees. And when we decided at Paris to, to aim for 1.5 degrees, we took into account the fact that 
we should treat every human equally, including poor communities in areas that are very vulnerable to climate change. We took into account the fact that we should care about future generations as much as we care about ourselves. And um, we also took into account the fact that there are non-financial aspects of life that, that matter, such as reduced air pollution, preserved biodiversity and avoiding mortality from you know, heat waves, for, for example. But financial markets don't care about poor and vulnerable communities. They don't really care about future generations. The discount rate is too high. And they don't care about non-financial quality of life issues. They just care about cash flows. So what maximizes cash flows for financial markets and net present values is quite different for what's best for society when it comes to climate. And until we force companies to face up to the costs of their polluting activities, we won't get alignment between markets and the environment. And, and if the market could solve this by itself, you know, climate change wouldn't be an externality and we wouldn't have a problem. Global warming would be well on its way to being solved already. And um, I think until we face up to this fundamental reality, we'll continue to face place far too much faith in voluntary market action and disclosure regimes when what we really need is some good old fashioned government regulation. So it's um, it's too voluntarily and perhaps even conflicting with some of the actual kind of commitments they have towards their fiduciaries or in that sense, it's not it's too externalized. It is. Their, yeah. We see this really being played out, you know, very recently in what's happened around um, the change in strategy from from BP, um, which has sort of adjusted its commitment to reducing um, oil output. Um, it's adjusted down its, its some of its shorter term targets. And it was um, heavily rewarded by financial markets for doing that. I mean, the share price went up between 10 and 20% following that announcement. So, and that is because um, financial markets are fully expecting governments to do too little on climate change, that they won't limit climate change to 1.5 degrees. And they're making assumptions about oil demand on, on that basis. And so there's a fundamental misalignment there. And um, I don't think it helps us to pretend that there's not a misalignment, um, because in, in, unless we face up to it, we, we will do lots of stuff that won't really work. Right. So it's like recognizing that misalignment rather than denying it and say, always keep on saying that, yes, you can make money by also being virtuous um, as, as investors. Yeah, you can't always. Sometimes being yeah. virtuous costs money, sadly. Yeah. yeah. So, and you mentioned governments. Is, is that the best sort of, is the stepping up of regulators, is that a way to internalize some of the externalities like climate change that are currently too far away from actual investment returns, but making that part of the cost of capital, so to say? Is that something that is mostly on regulators, would you say? So I think ultimately that is going to be necessary. I mean, what we need to do is we need to get these companies to internalize the costs of this polluting activity. And there's a number of ways that could happen. It could happen because consumers reject companies that pollute. It could happen because employees refuse to work for companies that pollute. It could happen you know, because investors refuse to give any financing to companies that pollute. I think the problem with climate change is that fossil fuels are so pervasive throughout the economy that none of those forces is really going to be strong enough or systemic enough to solve the issue. 
Uh, and so we are going to need government regulation, um, which doesn't need to be a carbon tax. It can just be regulatory standards. So things like banning internal combustion engines from 2035, that's, you know, that's implicit carbon pricing. Um, and that's not to say that some of these voluntary actions don't make some difference. I think they send signals to governments. I think governments find it much easier to act if they think they have strong constituencies of business support. So I think that some of these voluntary activities can create the circumstances in which change can happen. But I think that everything that, that, that investors do around these corporate activities needs to be with one eye on is this improving the likelihood that we get better government policy? And sometimes it does, but sometimes, sadly, you know, it's a distraction because politicians can say things like, you know, we're now requiring climate disclosures or, you know, we're going to make London a net zero financial centre, whatever that means, um, whilst ducking the much tougher policy questions that will actually make a difference. So we do also have to be careful that these voluntary activities don't become a distraction. And an excuse for, well, it doesn't work. Like, why would we act further? One one question, last question to quick it off. Um, fiduciary duty is something that very traditionally focuses indeed on this financial return. Do you think that that's something we should rethink? That that gives then immediately a license to asset managers and owners to to actually include some of the externalities in their own management practices in their own sort of investment practices so fiduciary duty is really really important um and yeah i mean in simple terms what it means is that when people look after money for a client or beneficiary they do so in line with that client or beneficiary's interests so the question then is what is in their interests and i think most people would agree that all else being equal you know, most clients are looking for better financial returns. And that's something that can generally be agreed on and assumed. And that is often the basis for savings, which is to provide, you know, kind of long term financial returns and pensions and so on. And so that has been the focus and how fiduciary duty has been interpreted to date. But of course, people do also have non-financial interests and concerns. But the problem is that they differ quite a lot in what those are. And they differ in their willingness to accept lower returns in order to have an impact on those non-financial interests. And I think it's quite dangerous to assume things on behalf of beneficiaries and to assume that we know what they want and, and, and think, particularly if we aren't finding it so easy to get those conclusions driven through our democratic processes. So I wouldn't be in favour of, say, assuming that clients would be happy to have their money used to pursue a 1.5 degree goal, you know, even when that might cost them money, when it's not clear that that goal can be achieved, when it's not clear that investment strategy can do much to achieve that, that goal. So, so I think that if, if asset managers and asset owners want to take non-financial considerations into account that may create costs and risks for clients, I do think it's incumbent on them to you know, make a an effort to find out what their clients' views are and then to build this transparently into, into fund management, fund mandates and, and objectives. So I think that's the first important point. I think the second point is that when we talk about fiduciary duties on some of these sustainability issues, I think there needs to be much less emphasis on investment strategies to pursue climate goals. So, 
you know, there's there are quite a lot of products out there that claim to be net zero aligned and they calculate the carbon footprint of the investment portfolio and say, look, this footprint is falling in line with, you know, with the required reduction to meet the Paris goals. So we're helping drive net zero. But often they're just doing this by, you know, divesting from heavily polluting assets. And, and, and given that most investments that we talk about for most people are just buying and selling shares and bonds that already exist, so that for every seller there has to be a buyer. It's not clear that shifting investment around investments around in this way has any kind of first order impact on on climate outcomes. Maybe may a little bit around the margin, but the evidence suggests it's it's pretty second order. But it also creates risks for clients potentially. So, yeah, you know, we have a lot of talk about risk of stranded assets, for example, from from fossil fuels. And um, it's certainly true that if government action is stronger than the market currently expects, then indeed there may be write downs in fossil fuel company share prices. But equally, if government action is slower than the market expects and governments fail to upgrade grid infrastructure or to enable storage, grid balancing and grid connections, then it could be renewable energy assets that are, that, that are stranded. So you know, pushing really hard on solutions also exposes clients more if things don't work out as, as as you hope. So I think this sort of investment strategy approach doesn't have great efficacy, but, but is also more risky. But then I think thirdly, there needs to be really very much an emphasis on stewardship. So companies can't get on a 1.5C trajectory at the moment, in most cases, because it's just not economically viable. The system incentives don't allow it. But investors can encourage companies to innovate at the boundary of what's commercially realistic. And that can lead to innovation and progress and can actually lead to companies themselves to, to push for climate regulation. And that brings me on to perhaps the final and most important point, that given that really the only way through this, it's such a systemic issue, the only way through it is proper regulation from government to change the incentives so that we make companies factor the costs of their pollution you know, into their P&L. Investors really need to look at what they're doing in that regard. So are they lobbying as aggressively on climate action as they do, for example, on changes to financial markets rules that will adversely affect their bottom line? Um, and I suspect they're not. Are they pushing the companies they invest in to support development of a coherent policy framework rather than lobbying against it to preserve their vested interests? And I think we're starting to see some interest in action here, but but we need much more. And, and, and overall, I summarise this as... Um, if you're a climate aware investor, you need to advocate for the world as you wish it to be while investing for the world as it is. And I think this is how you align climate action with fiduciary duties. I don't think that we can alter fiduciary duties to give investors carte blanche to do what they like without regard to what their clients may want them to do. Interesting. And advocating for is not the same as investing alongside Correct. something. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's a that's a great way to conclude this podcast. Thank you so much, Tom, for your time. Um, this was ESG Quick Takes. Um, we'll put a link to Tom's work in the in the show notes if people want to read more about his work. And um, yeah, it's really great blogs. I highly recommend. So thanks, Tom, and um, till next time. Thank you.